There's something really curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Extra. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal Extra. And of course, it's December. I can't believe the year has gone so quickly. And uh, TGP Nominal Extra wouldn't be the same without our resident astronomer, Ross Hockham. How are you doing, sir? Santa Claus is coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, It's gone really quickly. And uh, it's been a really busy year. I mean, it's, I mean, for you guys, it's been horrendously busy. And uh, <laughs> I mean, we've we've done a lot this year as well. I'm going to have to make a collage of all the different things we've been involved in this year, and uh, it's going to be a big one, I think. <laughs> yeah, hopefully next year will be better and bigger. Yeah, that's for sure. I normally ask well, what's been going on with you guys, but one of the things that you were involved in was the thing you did for the Transit of Mercury. Yes, with the Parks Trust. Yeah. Yeah, very good day. We were very lucky as well because uh, I set everything up and there was a nice bit of clearing and there's some clouds, but the clouds for once weren't where the event was happening. <laughs> Usually you do an event, you think, right, I need to see Jupiter. It'll be a line of clouds straight over Jupiter the whole time. But no, we had about, what was it? We started at 12 o'clock. I think it started about 12.30, the actual transit itself. 12.30 till about 1.30, we had an hour of clearness. We could see it really well. I had it streaming as well from my laptop onto the TV from, uh, I think it was the Canary Islands, just in case. <laughs> you had it streams from the SLU Community Observatory. That's the one, because they were on there and they're all talking about it and stuff. I didn't have the sound on. But I thought at least people can come along and if they can't see it through my telescope, it's there and I can chat to them about stuff and they can actually see it. So that was on and that was really good. It went well. And then, yeah, we were lucky. So we had it for an hour. Then there was a big load of cloud came over. It rained. I quickly grabbed the scopes and brought them in under the covered wash that they've got there. Within about half an hour, cleared up again, put them back out and we got about another hour's good viewing. It was a free event and we had loads of people. It must have been about 20, 25 people there constantly throughout the whole day just popping in and out having a cup of tea and that was the Parks Trust Blessing put on for free so thanks to them for that and yeah it was just a really nice day because usually last time it happened what was it 2015 or something mm -hmm. I was I was on my own in a field <laughs> just you know that was the day when I always say that it started because uh, that pavilion in Emberton brought me coffee and cake out so that must have been yeah about five years ago this time I got to because I was going to look at it anyway so why not share it with others and it was great yeah it's really nice talking to them and talking about how big it is and you know the distances and stuff like that it's it a really nice day really good and the the SLU community observatory stream as you mentioned it started off in the Canary Islands and they covered the whole five and a half hours on there um, and obviously one point when the Canary Islands and the sun was setting they then switched their stream to the University of Chile Astrophysics Institute telescope but they nearly got the whole of the transit but as sure as eggs are eggs the cloud obscured the final moments of the transit <laughs> So all that time and then right at the last moment <laughs> I couldn't believe it I was like oh <laughs> we saw it enter join go on some get about halfway into the middle and then it's set so yeah it was really it's really cool this day and age that you're able to see it 
like I think you had it on the whole day, didn't you? At your home, <laughs> pretty much. Um, it was really weird because I had double screening going on because um, SpaceX had a launch at exactly the same time, so I had. <laughs> I had the transit of Mercury on one screen and, and then SpaceX on another. So it was a pretty full-on experience for me. <laughs> good day, a couple of beers and watch some astronomical events. Yeah, it was good fun. And the commentary, actually, because they had a load of guests coming in throughout the afternoon on um, on the SLU feed. And um, so they had a lot of different astronomers from different parts of the world. So they were capturing pictures from all over the world uh, on there. So it was amazing to see it from different angles and everyone was, you know, watching the same thing at the same time. It was amazing. Yeah, all over the globe, eh? Yeah, definitely. Now, recently, Space Rocks founders and TGP nominal honorary crew members Alexander Milas and ESA's Mark McCorcoran have won the Space Achievement Education and Outreach Team Award at the British Interplanetary Society's Sir Arthur Clarke Awards. Now, that's not easy to say all in one go. That is a, that is a mouthful. <laughs> Glad you said it. Now, these are better known as the Arthurs, um, <laughs> and the awards recognise and reward those individuals and teams who have made notable or outstanding achievements in or contributions to all British space activities. Now, they're named after the famed 2001 Space Odyssey author Sir Arthur C. Clarke, one of the organisation's most beloved members. And the the late Arthur C. Clarke originally joined the British Interplanetary Society in 1934 when he was a teenager. Wow. The awards have been presented annually since 2005, and the awards ceremony, which takes place a different British city every year was held at the Interplanetary Society's Reinventing Space Conference Gala Dinner in Belfast's International Convention Centre. It's a huge honour, said Alexander Milas. It's not every day you get to accept an award from one of the most prestigious and oldest organisations of its kind in the world, which is named after one of the most beloved sci-fi authors of all time. So I'm proud to work with the many people who have made this possible through their support and working with us, especially my partners, friends and family who believed in it from the beginning. And then Mark McCorcoran said, we are blown away to receive such an honour. This is for everyone involved on stage and behind the scenes at our events. Thank you. And thanks, of course, goes out to all the Space Rocks friends and followers, without whom none of this would be made possible. And I like to think that we're included in that because we've been involved with Space Rocks since the conception of it, to be honest with you. And not only that... Sue Nelson, who I had the pleasure of interviewing at Space Rocks, won the Space Achievement Media Broadcast and Written for showcasing the Mercury 13 and the history of women in space through her inspiring book, Wally Funk's Race for Space, which I would recommend anybody go out there and buy because it's a really good read. And finally, on these awards... Dr. Alan Stern won the International Achievement Award for not only taking us as the principal investigator on the New Horizons mission to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt, but he's also won the award for the 29 other suborbital and planetary space missions in which he's been involved in. Wow, that's a lot. It is, and we so want to get Dr. Alan Stern on the show. We have put feelers out 
and uh, we're, we're working on it and we'd love to get him on the show. We'd love to make him an honorary crew member. And I just want to talk to him about Pluto. Because <laughs> we all know how I feel about that. Well, you're not alone, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot of feeling about Pluto, I think. <laughs> It wants to be a planet again. Yeah, and uh, if NASA's administrator has got anything to do with it, it's going to be a planet again. Cool. Now, I was listening to Steve Wright on BBC Radio 2 recently, and during one of the factoid sections on the show, I heard this, and Ross, I thought of you. How often do either of you look up at the night sky? And if you do that, do you know where things are and what things are? No, I don't really. I remember from school looking up and seeing the plough or the shovel or whatever it's called, right? <laughs> yeah, or the Big Dipper, they call it the in America. Dipper. Yeah, I can recognise the plough. I can just about recognise the three stars in the belt. Is that Orion, I think, or is that, that the Orion's Great Bear? Belt, no. I know that. And then we were on holiday in France in a quite rural area, so you see a lot more of the stars. And I remember thinking, what are those two bright things near the moon? And that was Venus and Mars. But I had to look that up. Off the top of my head, don't know much. Well, 44% of Brits want to know more about the night sky. Now, they're saying that the top stargazing spot is Forest Park, Galloway Forest Park in Scotland. I do remember being in another country in Australia and being out in the outback where the sky goes to the floor. You don't often get that ah. perspective. And just remember thinking, I know nothing of the night sky. And I suppose you can't learn it at school when you're there because it's daytime. Mm. I, ha I can't ever remember going to the planetarium. Can't remember that at all you know the planetarium in london yeah, that yeah, used to course. be so where do we get that information from i know you can look it up and we've got the internet but well, you've got apps now you've got a fantastic app that's what i did in france when i was just talking about there you can get apps and it will replicate the sky exactly as you should be seeing it and explain what everything Excuse is me. N um, sky at night everybody sky yeah, at night you used to have a telescope didn't you on the roof of your house when yes you i did i had my z shed where i had astronomy and uh, chemistry when i was a kid <laughs> what, ha what happened to your astronomy well i career? got up on the roof and you know yeah. nearly fell off did you have a zed bed in that zed shed? <laughs> I didn't have a zed bed, although it felt like I sometimes slept out there. 44% of the British public want to learn more about the night sky. Well, UK astronomy, we're there. We'll do what we can for you. <laughs> That's fantastic. You don't usually hear that sort of stuff, do you? No, it's not on mainstream. You might hear it on Radio 4 or something, but not on Radio 2, that's for sure. No, that's great to hear. It's definitely getting more interest out there isn't it a lot more interest mm -hmm. people are really interested they, they, because there's loads of rockets going up and things about the moon now and going back there I think interest is really going for it hopefully so let's we need to make it more we need to make it like 100% <laughs> yeah <laughs> right we're going to take a short break and when we come back I think Ross is going to go through the night skies for December with us Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. 
Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and space launch system rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. This is TGP Nominal. So, the skies this month, Venus is up in the afternoon sky, it's starting to come back, so that'd be really cool to see, really bright. It's gonna look really nice and bright in the sky. I think it's almost three quarters full this month, so it's gonna be really cool. Uh, it should be an easy spot. Saturn is literally not far from it really, just sort of like bottom right, but it's gonna be setting a lot earlier now. I'm afraid we've pretty much lost Jupiter. It's now gone below the horizon for a while, so we're not really gonna get a very good look at it. But Saturn is now heading that way as well, so it's probably the last month we get to see Saturn and its rings until next year sometime. But Uranus is up, pardon the pun. It's hanging just below Aries the Ram, so you can always spot that. It's probably the highest planet at the moment that I've seen, so fingers crossed if you've got a telescope, you will need a telescope unfortunately to see it, and it'll be there. Neptune is just slightly lower down in Aquarius, so that'll be a hard spot because it is setting around 10 p.m., so again, it will be kind of lower, but you've still got the chance to see it there. Wait till the moon's out of the way and have a little go. Have a look on some apps or I'll be posting on the Facebook and stuff like that so you can find it there. And Mars is now rising in the morning sky. So we now have a nice red blob <laughs> or blood as our ancestors used to think it was named after the God of War popping up in the morning sky. I can't say that you'll see much detail looking for a telescope really. You may if you get a really nice clear sky but it's still quite low. Uh, all I can say is be careful looking around you know when the sun's setting because the sun will burn your eyes out so don't look at the sun. And hopefully there'll be no storms. Yeah, fingers crossed. No dust storms covering everything. But we think we've got till, I think it's like June, July next year when we start getting around to it again. So we can blow it all out now and then it can be nice and calm and settled for us. <laughs> so it's June, July. Fingers crossed. That's pretty much it for planets-wise. Uh, as I said, I will be putting out other events happening in uh, on our UK Astronomy's Facebook page. But there is one event that I have to mention and that's the uh, Geminid Meteor Shower as it's usually a pretty good show. You get to see quite a few, although this year's one, there is a bright moon in the way. But you will still see some, hopefully. To find where they radiate from, so where they kind of like shoot out from, you just find the constellation Orion. It's really big and easy to find. He's got a belt, great easy spot, three big blue stars. Funnily enough, as we just heard on that radio show, didn't we? Mm -hmm. They knew where that was. <laughs> it's in a diagonal line. If you've got an app, you can draw some lines between the stars. It looks like two stick men holding hands, which are brothers Castor and Pollux. Their names are the two bright stars which represent their heads. The shower pretty much comes from around that area, so it's Gemini. That's why it's called Geminids. So literally above Orion. But the moon is going to kind of be around that area on its peak, which is the 13th and 14th. Both nights apparently are the best times to go out and see it. So you're probably best kind of maybe standing with the moon behind you and looking kind of up and away from it. And you might actually see some actually streak across it coming from that direction. It's probably the best way I'd say you're going to see it. Most are caused by comets, but this one's actually caused by an asteroid. And it's uh, Pyephon, or Pyephon. There's two different ways I think it said it. I did look it up just to see. <laughs> there are three different ways of saying it, so I'm going Pyephon, because I quite like that. Uh, what happens is it goes along, leaves a dust trail as it orbits the sun. The Earth then passes through dust trail. And as we know, on these dates, I talk about it a lot. 
we get a nice meteor shower. So this one is actually bits of asteroid as opposed to a comet. We've seen it, haven't we? Yeah. This one, when you go online, you can actually see what it's like. I'm not sure if we've visited it, but we have got pictures of it. So that's happy hunting. Hopefully, I'll see you in the new year for more astronomical adventures out there looking up at the sky next year. Astronomy always seems an odd topic to be featured on an audio podcast because the subject matter is very visual, but not when it comes to radio astronomy. Data from ESA's cluster mission has recently provided a recording of an eerie song that the Earth sings when it is hit by a solar storm. The song comes from waves that are generated in the Earth's magnetic field by the collision of the storm. The storm itself is an eruption of electrically charged particles from the Sun's atmosphere. A team led by Lucille Turk, a former ESA research fellow who is now based at the University of Helsinki in Finland, made the discovery after analysing the data from the Cluster Science Archive. The archive provides access to all the data obtained during Cluster's ongoing mission over the last two decades. Now, Cluster consists of four spacecraft that orbit the Earth in formation, investigating our planet's magnetic environment and its interaction with the solar wind, a constant flow of particles released by the sun into our solar system. As part of their orbits, the cluster spacecraft repeatedly flew through the foreshock, which is the first region of particles that they encounter when solar storms hit our planet. The team recently found that during 2001 to 2005, the spacecraft flew through six such collisions recording the waves that were generated. When the frequencies of these magnetic waves are transformed into audio signals, they give rise to an uncanny song that might recall more like sound effects from a sci-fi movie than a natural phenomenon. Do you want to have a listen to it? Let's do it. That's freaky. It is, isn't it? If you heard that, you'd think it's some sort of alien signal, wouldn't you? You would. And a lot of these things that they they find at um, Jodrell Bank and places like that, they go through these things with a fine-tooth comb, working out what it is and where the sound's bouncing off of. And uh, occasionally they do get the odd signal that they don't know what it is. <laughs> um, Spooky, <laughs> the wow one or the little green, yep. the little green man um, signal. Yeah. The reason why it was called wow was because that's what somebody wrote in red pen with an exclamation <laughs> mark after they saw it and went, "Wow, what the hell is that?" I recall there was another one. I think it was in Australia where they kept getting the signal and they couldn't work it out. And then they realised it was when people opened the microwave. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny in a way because you're kind of like, makes sense now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the time, you would never think of something in the area. You'd think of it, well, it must be somewhere in space. It makes sense because microwaves do emit signals. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, solar storms are part of space weather, while... The solar wind is always blowing. Explosive releases of energy close to the sun's surface generate turbulence and gusts that eventually give rise to solar storms. Understanding space weather has become increasingly important to society because of the damaging effects solar storms have on sensitive electronics and technology on the ground and in space. It is now more important than ever that we understand how space weather disturbances such as solar storms propagate through the solar system and down to earth 
and ESA have an upcoming mission called the Solar Orbiter mission, which is scheduled for launch in February next year, and they will be able to greatly contribute to these investigations. So watch out for that. That will be happening in February, and we'll probably be mentioning it at some point nearer to the time. Right, we're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we're going to have a guest. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. You might remember last month that uh, Chris Lintot from The Sky at Night came on board to bring you his object of the month. Well, that wasn't the only reason Chris came on board. Have a listen to this. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. It's a lovely sunny day in Oxford, so I'm feeling cheerful. The main reason why you're joining us today is to talk about your new book. It's called The Crowd and the Cosmos. It's the stories of my adventures in the Zooniverse. So the Zooniverse is a project, or many projects, that asks people to get involved in science. Uh, It started off with asking people to classify galaxies, but these days you might try to discover a planet, you might count penguins, transcribe papyri, or or work with data from some of the world's most advanced microscopes. Um, We discovered that a problem which I thought was unique to me, that I had so much data that I needed help to sort through it, is something that lots of scientific researchers share. And so for more than a decade now, we've been trying to build these projects that get a very large community to participate. And we've been having a lot of fun uh, along the way. And so the book is really that story. Um, it's also a way of thinking about what modern science is and, and how, how we do science. I think we're taught at school often that science is about doing careful experiments. You know, you set up two test tubes and you put acid in one and alkali in the other and then you see what happens. Um, my life as an astronomer is not like that. I don't get to do careful experiments, partly because we're dealing with stuff that's a long way away, partly because it's just too difficult. And so I wanted to write about astronomy as an archaeological science, about uh, a way of digging up the past, present and future of the universe from observations. So hopefully there's a, there's a bit of something for everyone in there. So it really does incorporate all the sciences. Uh, Zooniverse certainly does, yeah. I've had a, a wonderful time being distracted i usually tell people i'm a distracted astronomer i think um i realized i'd gone perhaps too far when i found myself halfway up a a a cliff in antarctica clinging to uh ice under which there was this yellow liquid running down which is nice fresh rainwater mixed with penguin poo and i realized that perhaps this wasn't the best place for an astronomer to be but but we have um we have jumped around a a lot and learned um, from all sorts of colleagues, ecologists, um, microbiologists, and so on, and, and, and used their insights to try and improve our astronomy. So there's there's quite a few people involved with the creation of the book. Really, the book is the story of, of what my team have done over the last few years. We've had some really interesting and, and wonderful people work on the Zooniverse o- over the years. So so it is it is their effort. There's also, of course, the volunteers. So, so one of the stories that I was keen to bring out was the, the remarkable things that happen when people with a bit of curiosity are let loose in your data set. Um, so many of the, the, the most fun things that have happened in the Zooniverse 
have been because individual people have got interested in a topic. Um, there's a volunteer on our Planet Hunters project who discovered an old paper that suggested uh, that you might be able to find not exoplanets, not planets going around other stars, but exocomets. And he went through the entire dataset from NASA's Kepler Space Telescope trying to find, be the first to find these excellent, uh, unusual objects. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it, 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 you know, though it's my story and it's my... Uh, sort of experience of the project there is this vast hinterland of, of other people and other topics and, and other contributions so where can people get the book from uh, all the usual places it's on Amazon if you don't mind buying from Amazon but your local bookshop will have it it's also available if you like the sound of my voice uh, as an audio book from Audible and anywhere else that you get your audio literature the book is available now I will put links up to it in the show notes so you can have a look for it and it could possibly be a good read for Christmas I think yeah definitely I'm going to have I'm going to have to download it and have a listen I think on my way to work and that be interesting I'm not sure if it's the same one it might have been I recall it there was one that was just open on the internet and people could just go on and you put little rings almost around things that you thought were like nebulas or galaxies or something interesting there are two or three of them but i think zooniverse was probably one of the first to do it it's a great idea because think about it they're struggling with data you might be the first to discover something yeah that's what it's all about which is really cool so the next thing i asked him was what was the most exciting thing that had been discovered at the zooniverse project this is like trying to pick your favorite child um I, I i think i think one of the most interesting stories is the story of the green peas so these are small galaxies they are in the background of many of the Im images that we were studying um, the volunteers called them the peas because they're small, round and green so that makes some sort of sense um, actually the group of volunteers involved called themselves the Peas Corps which I thought was excellent, <laughs> I didn't realise it was a joke until I said it out loud about a year into the project and this was re remarkable for a couple of reasons the, these volunteers noticed that there was something unusual about these background images, they didn't look like stars they didn't look like galaxies uh, but they also noticed that they tended to all be the same colour and so rather than leaving it at that they found a pet computer scientist they persuaded him to help write database queries and they, they went back to the original astronomical data and they looked for all the objects that happened to be this colour and they found that some of them were the peas, some were just irregular galaxies so they sorted through all of those then they pulled the spectra for these um, unusual objects, they discovered that the reason they were this colour was that most of the light was being emitted by um, ionised oxygen, um, which turns out to be an indicator of star formation. Now, the first we knew about this project was we got an email that started, um, we think we've discovered a new class of galaxy, and, and remarkably, they absolutely had. So these peas turn out to be really distinctive. The, the way to think about it, I think, is that they're the most efficient factories of stars in the local universe. So for reasons that we don't understand, these are small galaxies. They tend to live in the middle of nowhere in sort of less populated bits of the universe. But suddenly they've decided to turn all their gas into stars for reasons that we don't understand. Um, and, and people have started studying them and arguing about them because we think they might be a local equivalent of what happened to galaxies like the Milky Way a few billion years ago. These may be sort of the last stragglers to reach this stage of, of galactic evolution. But the interesting thing is if you go back 
to papers from the 1950s to catalogues of objects in the sky, you can find the peas there. It's just that no one had looked at them, so no one had realised that they were a distinctive group of galaxies that was worth looking at. The other thing that's interesting is that once you know they exist and they're interesting, you can find them automatically without too much trouble. So we now have a large catalogue of peas, and we even have peas in the distant universe, which can could be picked out. But again, we needed that human intervention of saying, look, these things are interesting. These things are different. Uh, and that's a really nice argument for why you, we want volunteers to look through these large data sets that as scientists we've created. It, it enables us to get distracted uh, and um, to, to pay attention to individual objects in a way that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. That's that's absolutely amazing. And I know in the past you've worked with Stargazing Live and, and um, set out projects for the public to get involved with and, and remarkably discovered stuff. Yeah, the working with Stargazing Live is is a pleasure, partly because of the sheer chaos of that show. I mean, the, I, I, I've learned, I think, that there's a reason no one does live television. And Stargazing Live is, is three nights of, of live television. So our aim was set out project on day one, give an update on day two, and announce the results on day three. And this puts my team under pressure, uh, mainly because there's a legion of people who will do whatever Brian Cox says. When he looks towards the camera and says uh, with, with his you know rock star status and says please go and help us find a planet then a bunch of people suddenly hit the website actually the really disturbing thing is they wait until he's finished speaking then we see an enormous spike of traffic on the, on the project so, so that, that's been really good fun and we were very keen that it would be very easy I think for those to be gimmicky to, to fake something to hide some asteroids in the data or whatever but they've always been real projects and we, we have occasionally failed um, but the Stargazing Line team trusted us and trusted our volunteers um, I think my, my favourite example was a recent project we did with them where we were looking for supernovae for exploding stars and so we managed to on night one we took data from a, a telescope in California that looks for changes in the sky we managed to find some candidate supernovae we got uh, a friend who was on a telescope in Chile to follow up on those supernovae two of them turned out to be real one of them turned out to be what's called a type 1a supernova these are special uh, events that can be used to measure the expansion of the the speed of the expansion of the universe uh, they're what they're what's called standard candles they they appear to be the same brightness roughly wherever they're seen so you can work out how far away they are and then using this this new observation we managed uh, to do a new calculation for the age of the universe live on television now obviously a single supernova maybe it's obvious a single supernova doesn't shift the age of the universe uh, by very much and and i think the producers were a bit nonplussed by the fact i think we made the universe about fifty thousand years older than previously <laughs> determined which you know i guess is a lot if you live those fifty thousand years but otherwise <laughs> it's not much compared to 13.8 billion um but but that was the point really i thought that that was really nice because it showed the excitement of doing science in real time but it also showed that it's an incremental process that it takes time to to build these things up and I think that probably what makes the difference between what you do on the sky at night now and then what it was like when the show first went out because that was pretty much 
live, wasn't it? Yeah, the Sky at Night has this this long history, and in some ways, Stargazing Live's a callback to that. But for the first ten years or so, it was de- it was delivered live, uh, and you know, Patrick's ideal program was Patrick Moore sitting in a studio talking to a camera, preferably about the moon, as quickly as possible for exactly twenty minutes. And and yeah, even when I started on the Sky at Night, I've been doing it a long while now. My first episode was in two thousand, and those first few episodes that I did were recorded essentially as live. So we were in the corner of a big studio, they had three cameras, and um, you know, you hit your cues and, and it was recorded. You might come back and do a couple of bits to correct for mistakes, but it was essentially recorded as if it was a live show. These days, the technology's moved on, so we don't need to do that, so we can be much more um, creative, we can fit more people in, we can we can cover topics in, in ways that we'd never have done before. Uh, but we have lost a little bit of the excitement of live. We, ju- we just did uh, the first live episode for a, for a long while was a, a question time at the University of Warwick. And we filmed for about an hour and a half, answering audience questions on, on pretty much everything. There was astrochemistry, space travel, all, all sorts of things. And, and it was fun to get back to that. There's, a, there's an immediacy that's very appealing, I think. And it's, it's very unpredictable what you're going to get asked anyway. So off the cuff, a lot of the things that you have yeah. to come up with. Well, it's always interesting what people are, are interested in. I think I always find if you tell people you're an astronomer, you get there are three questions that come up immediately. Uh, the first one is, do you know Brian Cox? Uh, which, you know, he's a particle physicist, but I guess he, guess he's friendly to astronomers. Uh, the second one is, have you found aliens? Uh, to which the answer is no. And the third one is always some variant of, were you good at this at school? Because people have this idea that science is something you sort of are born with and that the number of people who were put off at least formal study of science by school textbooks or by the way maths is taught is enormous and Zooniverse is, is, is partly an attempt to get at those people and, and show them that science can be as simple as, as saying what you see in a picture uh, rather than sitting down with a, a textbook and a, a bunch of quantum physics equations that you don't understand. I, I think personally if, if things become more interactive um, I think it gets absorbed more. I think that's right. I mean, you learn by doing, right? There's a reason that, uh, you know, I sit in lectures and I take notes, not because I need the notes. I've got a pile of notebooks I never look at, but because if I don't do that, I'm not, I know I'm not going to remember anything. Uh, I think learning by doing or, or getting interested because you've found something, like the, the number of people who've said to me over the years that they, they can't believe that they're now looking at the details of galaxy spectra uh, when, when two weeks ago they, they'd never considered a galaxy at all but once you've found something that you think is yours, that's a powerful motivator to learn as well. We, we do have some younger listeners on the show, what would you say to them to get into the sciences, what would you say to, to inspire them to get involved? You know, I, I think it's a remarkable time to be interested in science, whatever age you are. I think the fact that you can go to the NASA website and if you hit it at the right time, you can see pictures from the Curiosity rover that's rumbling around Gale Crater on the surface of Mars, for goodness sake. You can see those pictures before the people who built the rover. They just go online as soon as they come down from Earth. That's amazing. That sort of ability to follow science in real time is, is incredible. Um, I think there are an enormous number of resources out there for people who, who want to do that. So 
the way I'd put it, I think, again, for for any age, is that you should be a fan, if you're interested, you can become a fan of science in the same way that other people might be a fan of their sports team. You know, pick a researcher or a group or a topic and follow along as we argue with each other and disagree and um, as the confusion of science happens. I think there's a tendency, I think, in the past to think of science as... Yeah, a clever man standing on stage telling you about things that he understands and, and you don't. Uh, that's not how science is, and that and that's not how you can consume it now. So, yes, of course, get involved in Zooniverse. You could definitely do that. But if you follow the right people on Twitter, you can see scientists talking to each other and being confused and and so on. When um, we're, we're currently very excited in the astronomical world because our, our first ever proper interstellar comet only the second large object ever to come from beyond the solar system and be spotted. This is Comet Borisov. It's currently swinging through the solar system. But when that was discovered, I found out about it because I was watching three of the people I know argue on Twitter about what this argument was. And then other people jumped in and started uh, discussing which telescopes they should use to follow up and uh, and what it might be and whether it was a comet or whether it was something else. And so um, you know, a lot of this stuff is done in the public in a way that it wasn't before uh, and that means everyone has a chance to, to get involved in the really exciting bit uh, of science which is the points where we don't know what we're talking about <laughs> peas in space huh never knew they existed <laughs> now you're gonna have to look that up aren't you I was, yeah, I was just about to say that i'm gonna have to look it up but the worst thing is my boss at work he hates peas <laughs> so i can't discuss it with him he won't like that at all what do you mean there's giant peas in space well <laughs> I heard it from the horse's mouth. <laughs> but yeah, how cool is that? That people were actually discovering things that were there but weren't really interested in, in a way. Yeah. We're definitely going to have to uh, put a link up to the, the Zooniverse project because I can guarantee you there's going to be some of our listeners out there that would like to get involved. Oh, I'll definitely have a look at it. Definitely. I like what he was talking about as well, that there's live feeds on Twitter and stuff. I didn't actually know that. Because as you know, I'm not really up to scratch on those sorts of things with that side of it. So I might have to have a little peek at that as well. And it'd be cool to sit here while I'm doing stuff and actually have that blog or whatever going on and seeing it in motion. There are quite a lot of arguments. I I do (laughs) recall one between Brian Cox and Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's a clash of titans. One who is an astronomer and works for a planetarium and and universities blah 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 and one who's a particle physicist where Neil deGrasse Tyson said you're not actually qualified to talk about this (laughs) which was quite interesting yeah there's a blow that's a kidney blow there It's good fun. Like it. Good fun stuff. Yeah. They've got good banter, haven't they, really? And they all get on. It's the facts. (laughs) You're a particle physicist. You're not even an astronomer. What are you talking about? So we went on to general questions, 
But the first thing I asked him was, what was his stance on artificial constellations like the SpaceX Starlink? I do worry about a world in which you can't get the primordial view of the night sky, where any view many, many hours after sunset would reveal this band of of travelling lights. And, And maybe there's something nice about that. But it is a change to the sky that I think we should talk about. Um, I think that one of the problems is there's no one or no venue that's empowered to make decisions. So if I want to fly a a constellation of satellites in the shape of the Torquay United logo, uh, and frankly this is a a lifetime ambition, um, I need to get permission to launch those satellites, but at no point in that permission will they consider whether the people of Exeter or the rest of the country want to look at the Torquay United logo (laughs) two hours after, after sunset. Uh, and I think we do need to start taking that into account because people will commercialise this as, uh, uh, as well. You know, painting logos on the moon is far-fetched but not ridiculous. And, and at the minute, there's no jurisdiction that, w- that would make a judgement about that. I mean, Douglas Adams was writing about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, yeah unfortunately, for all I love Douglas Adams, his, his cynicism has an awful habit of being correct, usually. So. <laughs> I know there's a few of the SpaceX ones that have gone up, and, and there was massive controversy when, when that went up. As I've mentioned to you, I'm involved with a, a charity called UK Astronomy, and they've got a Facebook group. And when that happened... Oh, it was a minefield of <laughs> comments that was coming through about that kind of stuff. I don't think we're very good at dealing with this because we're used to being advocates for looking at the sky. We all have that feeling. And if you're a space fan, you have that, you've had that feeling somewhere of looking up and thinking about the mysterious and, and vast universe. But we're also instinctively sort of in favour of many of us of the exploration of space. And the idea that those two things would conflict is pretty difficult, I think, for a lot of people. Um, I don't think it helped the way SpaceX handled the publicity um elon musk is is right about many things but he said well of course they won't be visible after sunset uh and and that especially up here in the in in the northern bits of the planet that that's just not true um the satellites are visible for several hours after sunset and for much of the year throughout the night um so so hopefully they'll be more thoughtful next time but there is a sense that we're rushing headlong into this without quite understanding what we're getting into. And talking of space exploration, what are your thoughts on going back to the moon? Well, I hope it happens. I'm always extremely envious of people who have memories of of watching the Apollo landings. I think that must have been such an incredible moment. And scientifically, I'm more and more convinced by the benefits of putting people on the moon or, or on Mars. I think I was just looking yesterday at the struggles of the InSight lander, which is the geophysical mission that landed in the most boring place on Mars and trying to st- study deliberately. Uh, it's trying to study the, the uh, planet's interior. And so I, I know the mission because it has a seismometer on board, which was built by some of my friends here in Oxford uh, and, and other, other people we've had on the sky at night. But one of the points of the mission was to have this little mole that was going to drill a few metres into the surface and thus be able to work out what the temperature of the gradient in the interior uh, was and they're what we're now 11 months into the mission and they haven't managed to get the mole drilled in uh, and in fact just 
two days ago, it jumped back up out of the hole. They thought they'd fixed it, and now something about the, the soil or about the way that gas interacts with the soil has basically pushed the thing back out. Now, that's a task that it would take even me, and I'm a pretty cat-handed... You wouldn't let me put a picture up in your house if you could <laughs> avoid it. Like, that would take me probably five minutes to make sure that that probe was properly deployed. Um, it's taken a team of NASA engineers 11 months to get absolutely nowhere because they're controlling a robot on another world. So so I think there's huge advantage in having people uh, explore and wander, uh, and that's true for both the Moon and Mars. Um, what I don't see any evidence of is anyone willing to pay for it. So NASA is currently promoting its Ar- Artemis program, which goes, which is supposed to put um, people back on the moon by 2024. If that happens, I will happily eat the moon. I just, I just don't <laughs> see any any sense that the kind of funding needed to do stuff that fast will happen. And so that puts NASA back on a we're 10 years away and, and we've been 10 years from going back to the moon for my entire life. People then look to SpaceX and, and to others and I think there probably is a small market for tourism, I think. The question is whether you can get enough money to fund the rockets that are needed from um, people willing, enough people willing to, to be the first people to try out what, what's going to be quite a dangerous journey. Yeah. Uh, I think I remember talking, I'm not going to tell you which company, but I remember talking to one of the companies that's heavily, heavily involved in promoting space tourism. Uh, and they talked about having a one in a hundred rules. They thought they could work hard and reduce the chance of somebody dying on one of their trips to, to one in a hundred. So one in a hundred missions will fail. And then they said, okay, if we fly 50 without a failure and then somebody fails we think people will still book and travel if any of the first 50 fail we think we'll kill the market and those are not good odds so i i desperately want to see people back in space i i would happily go to the moon myself if anyone's offering Uh, but i but i i don't yet until we get politicians who um see the value of investing in sort of the most inspirational science one can imagine uh, and working in an international way to do it. I, I'm afraid I'm pretty pessimistic that, that we will see it happen. Getting it done by 2024 is, yeah, it's just, in I mean, my eyes, it's I not mean, feasible. I mean, a, an average unmanned probe to some part of the solar system would be about 10 years from design phase to launch and and i haven't heard a good argument as to why we can do this faster and the fact is i mean it's only within the last six months or so that there was any any kind of plans for a lander so yeah i mean their (laughs) argument i talked to jim bell who's you know who's nasa's chief scientist and has been been around the block and is a sensible bloke and his argument at least in public was that um, they've done much of it before, that the only new bit is the lander. But even so, that seems an aggressive timescale. SpaceX and, and Boeing are both in the middle of trying to qualify vehicles to go to take people to the space station, you know, from American soil with American rockets, which hasn't been done f- since the end of the shuttle. Uh-huh. Um, and those programs are going well, but they're late. Uh, over budget. I think they're over budget. Just doing that has taken much more than four years. I'm afraid it's politically driven by the Trump administration, and um, yeah, I think I think that's it's just not likely to happen. Um, the 2024 date is picked because of the U.S. election cycle, not because of any engineering. Uh, yeah, well, I, we we kind of joked on the show that it's probably 
due to the uh, the current administration trying to trying to leave a legacy before they get booted out. But, well, I, th- uh, I think that's right. Yeah, I think they want <laughs> to make sure that they, you know, that would set up a, you know, presumably somebody sitting somewhere somewhere is like, well, then, you know, Pence twenty twenty four would be boosted by waving an American flag on on the moon. So, because of the American system, Congress isn't going to give them money to do it for exactly that reason. So. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it is slightly a shame that that's, that's where we've ended up, I think. Mm. Um, there were some interesting plans, things like the Lunar Gateway, which was a version of the space station, but in orbit around the moon, uh, had more or less got most of the world's space agencies on board. And I, I was beginning to think that, well, it's not the same as having you know, your Hilton Hotel on the surface of, uh, <laughs> of the lunar South Pole. Uh, you know, I thought that was a realistic and interesting goal that people could actually work towards, and that's all been thrown out because NASA's switched to planning for Artemis. So, so yeah, let's let's hope I'm wrong, eh? We could do with some optimism. I mean, I thought a, a great idea when they were talking about it a few years ago about when the ISS becomes defunct that they would use some of the, the modules from that to actually create this gateway oh i hadn't heard that i guess yeah i mean why why not recycle if you've already got it that far um certainly a lot of the learning that has been done on the space station will be useful you know we have learned how to exist uh for or or to have people live in the space station for a year we've learned a lot about quite obscure topics but things like how to 3d print in space which is interesting and, and useful there just needs to be the political will to go go a bit further because we chatted to Tim Peake and that, didn't we? And people at Space Rocks, some people think that we are going to go and they are going to make it, and others think, mm, I don't know. And it's the same with the Starlink satellites and all that stuff. Yeah, space is the future, I think. Anyway, I think we need we, we are going to go up there more. There are going to be more spaceships flying. There are going to be more satellites. But you then have to have the other side of you do have to care about people looking up, <laughs> like me. Because as you said, look, there's, there's a lot of country, you know, I thought they looked cool. When I saw them going across in a line in the sky, I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. But if you had hundreds of them every night, then it kind of then becomes not cool. Mm-hmm. So there's like a fine line, isn't there, between, you know, making it work. That's for sure. Now, the last thing I asked him was, what advice would he give to budding astronomers? Well, don't buy a telescope. That's the first thing. I think the number of people I, I meet who bought a telescope, discovered that it's quite difficult to use, uh, and then gave up, uh, that's a large population. So what I'd really suggest, first of all, is going and finding your local astronomical society. So there's a, uh, a webpage run by the Federation of Astronomical Societies here in the UK. There are similar ones around the world that will give you a list of, of local societies. And go find them. They have telescopes. They run observing nights. They will love to see you. So the first thing I would do is to find a group that can support you uh that's the most important thing um the other thing i think is that being an astronomer is almost just a state of mind we often give the impression to really enjoy the night sky you need to go to a dark site you know the middle of wales or or up in the scottish highlands or something um and and it's true that going to those places on a clear night is is a life-changing and spectacular experience i i can still think of particular things that i've seen on particular nights from some of the darkest sites in the world and and those memories are amazing but i get almost as much pleasure from being here in the middle of oxford which is you know pretty street lighty there are some floodlit buildings and it it's a pretty brightly lit city but just going out and noticing the phase of the moon 
gives me an enormous sense of, of being connected to space and being connected to this small ball that we're on as we orbit around the sun noticing that jupiter's disappearing into the murk at the minute that mars is in the morning sky and over the next year will become more prominent more obvious and, and will rise earlier i think that sort of city astronomy is hugely underrated and and all it takes to to do that is to to go outside and, and look up every time you step outside when it's dark this time of year it's really easy it's dark at 5 p.m so so look up and see see if you can see jupiter on the horizon or or see if the moon is different from a week ago i, I, I genuinely think it's very good for the soul i think it is yeah because it, it, it's so sort of like primeval to look up at the sky and and imagine that thousands of years ago our ancestors were doing exactly the same thing. I think that's right. They're seeing the same stuff from the same places to, to some extent. I may have 56,000 emails unread in my inbox, but I know what the face of the moon is going to be like next next week. There's something very, very reassuring about that. Um, yeah, another good one, I think if people haven't seen the space station, I think everyone should see the space station go across. So NASA has a Spot the Station website, uh, usually a couple of times a month in the UK we get good passes where just after sunset uh, the space station will go overhead and just watching this point of light move across the sky and realising that that's got people in it I think is pretty stunning um, especially if you're there 90 minutes later sometimes you get a double pass and you can see it 90 minutes later and realise that it, those people have been right the way around the earth in the time that you've been you know, having a cup of tea or something um, so, so everyone should see the space station everyone should keep an eye on the moon and the planets and then yeah everyone should go and find some telescopes and a dark sky once in a while can't disagree with that can I <laughs> now it is difficult because instantly when everyone thinks of astronomy they straight away go what's the best telescope for me to buy and we always say the best telescope that you can buy is the one that you use. So don't just go out and grab anything. Go and research stuff. Come to us. We've got a whole range of scopes for you to try out. And there's, there's astronomical groups all over the UK that you can, you know, there's one nearby everywhere. I mean, go stargaze and I've got a whole map. You pop on their website that shows you all the events that are going along all in the UK. So you can find one close to you. Go, try the scope out, see the stuff. And you'll probably realise you don't even need a telescope. I remember being in Eastbourne and looking on an app on my phone that the International Space Station was going over and I thought, I wonder if I can see it. They had no clue about it at all. And I looked up, saw this big white star going across the sky and I thought, wow, that can't be it, surely. But there, there it was on the app, following it perfectly. And I was like, that is a space station and I can see it here going around the Earth. That is crazy. And in the garden there, it was only over for like a, a few minutes, but I just felt, I don't know, just in awe. It's sci-fi. <laughs> just going out and looking up and seeing the constellations and where the planets are, as he said, is just really cool. You don't need a telescope. And then you've always got binoculars. Most people have binoculars in their garage or somewhere that they use just when they did bird spotting or looking at stuff they liked, plane spotting, things like that. Why not pop it up into the sky? You see loads of different stuff. So yeah, no, 100% agree with what he's saying there. And there's not really much more I can <laughs> add to that. So, Chris, thanks for taking time out from your busy schedule to come and chat with us. My pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation. So, how cool was that? Brilliant. Natural interview with him, eh? Yeah. Once again, because of Space Rocks. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Little things. I mean, I end up going to Space Rocks because of you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, meet people, you get to know them. Next thing you know, I invite you into London, you go and meet Tim Peake. <laughs> Considering, like I said, five years ago, I was sat in a field looking at the eclipse on my own. 
Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, Ross, it's the end of another packed show. Thanks again for coming on board. Thank you very much for having me over the year and, well, two or three years now, isn't it? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Always enjoy it, always cool, and I think you're just getting better and better. (laughs) You're getting more and more people on the show, and from listening to recent ones, just fantastic, mate. Really well done. It's been amazing. It was just me and John talking about space and sci-fi and stuff and we didn't know where it was going and here you are today (laughs) so the next show that will be out is the garbage pod stroke tgp nominal christmas crossover so look forward to that we're going to have different people on the show there's going to be some christmas messages from people that have helped us out over the years also check out the latest episode of the garbage pod Um, we haven't brought one out for a little while but we've just put this one into the fold and it's featuring phil the four stays compare eddie spangles so check that out there'll be a link to that in the show notes that only leaves me with one thing left to say and that is thanks for listening take care one and all and i'll speak to you all again real soon well that about wraps it up for this episode of tgp nominal If you want to get in touch with us, then send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.